Now, as we come to New Year's, many like to make resolutions. I don't really make a ton because I know I'll probably break them by next week. But what are, just for some interaction, what are some common resolutions that people make at New Year's? Just throw them at me. Get in shape. Well, some of us are already in a shape and it's round, so I've already gotten that down. What else? Get in shape. Anybody? Stick to your budget, financial goals, right? Maybe save some money. What else? What was that? Get your life together. Amen to that. That's kind of broad. Might need some more specific goals after that, but what else? Anybody? Anybody? I have one. What? Have some more friends. Well, that's a good resolution. Maybe stop smoking. Some people, you know, want to quit smoking. Um, be healthy. Absolutely. So there's a lot of a lot of choices. A lot of people make different resolutions. And so, um, you know, a lot of people want to commit themselves to be healthy. So they eat nothing but salads for the first week of January. Now, that's not sustainable. You know, could you imagine going to a pizza restaurant? You know, they get the pizza and the breadsticks or, or, even, or even like a steakhouse, you know. And they get those free rolls and those are sitting in front of you. And you're trying to be healthy and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat a salad. So you order a salad when you really want a steak. So you get that salad, and then, you know, you're doing really good, really good, and then those rolls are still there. Is anybody going to eat that? And then you eat the roll, and your New Year's resolution is shot. Well, it's not sustainable to just say, well, I'm going to eat only salads. There's better ways to pursue health. Others spend hours at the gym, but don't see immediate results, and they give up. And in order to be healthy physically, it's not going to happen overnight, but it's a long road that requires commitment. And in the same way, to be a healthy church requires commitment as well. When when you put sinners, as all of us are, in one body, that's a lot of sinners rubbing shoulders together. And so in order to pursue health as a church... That takes work. And, that, and we're not going to drift towards that. In fact, we may drift away from that. And so as we approach the new year, we often look forward to new th- things. But I want us to look back at the first gathering of the church recorded in the New Testament. And essentially get back to the basics and see what we ought to be committed to as a church. It's easy to get swept away by the newest book on church growth or, or the, the newest marketing principles and, and things like that. There's strategies everywhere that tell churches how to do this. But I think the most important thing is to look back in Scripture. And the church is God's idea, and He has a plan for it. And so we must learn from the Word of God what the church is and what the church does. Before we dive into five commitments that I'd like us to look at today, the Greek word for church literally means a gathering or assembly. And that's why the writer of Hebrews tells us to not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. It's true that the church isn't the building, but the church is the people, but the church is a gathered people. It's not the building that makes up the church. It's not our name. We could change our name, move into a different building, but as long as we gathered, we would be the church. The church fundamentally is a gathering of believers. And when we look at the book of Acts, the church is made up of people who have been redeemed by the gospel, filled with the Spirit, and so the church is a gathering of redeemed, Spirit-filled believers. And the next question then is what ought the church be committed to when these redeemed, spirit-filled believers gather? So that's going to take us to Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. And if you will, we'll stand as we give honor to the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. 
says this. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place to the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. You may be seated. Before we get to this point, Jesus appears to them in the book of Acts. And then, as he is ascending, he's about to ascend. In Acts Acts 1.8, they ask, is this the the time that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus says, no, don't worry about that. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, when the Spirit comes upon you. And then after that, we, we have a sermon from Peter. And that's recorded in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Recommend you to read that. And this is the same Peter who denied Jesus three times, but then later was restored at the end of the Gospel of John. And Peter preaches this powerful sermon. And, and, and he preaches the Gospel. Ending in verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter, the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart from the sermon that they have heard. And Peter says, Repent, and each and every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day were added about 3,000 souls. Now picture that. This is... The early church, Jesus had picked 12 men, 12 ordinary men, to spearhead this movement of Christianity. And here, Peter, one of those ordinary men, preached the gospel, and explosive growth happens. 3,000 people come to faith. In Christ. And now you have this large group. But what are they supposed to do? Well, they gather. And so here we have the first mega church. <laughs> but not only that, we see them meeting together in homes, we see other churches form. And so what do they commit to? And that's what we're going to look at right now. And the first thing I want us to see is that a healthy church is committed to biblical doctrine. The first thing we see here in this text is that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. And that word, the Greek word for teaching, is also the word for doctrine. Now, doctrine can often be deemed as an ugly word in denominational life. Doctrine can be divisive. And certain doctrines can be, and doctrine often fuels debate, especially on college campuses. But we shouldn't be afraid of that word. In fact, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul here tells Timothy that the two things are important. Your life, the way you live, and your doctrine, what you believe. And he says, watch these things carefully. Because by them you will save both yourself and your hearers. Salvation is at stake when it comes to both our life and that which we believe 
and declare. Now, Paul says in Galatians, if we or an angel or any man preach any other gospel other than which you have received, let him be accursed. So what we believe matters, otherwise we may get the gospel wrong. And there are two types of Christians, I believe, in the world. One overemphasizes doctrine. And this person is the one who can always be seen in a heated debate over theological minor issues. They very well may be very theologically sound and they can defend what they believe very well, but their life isn't marked with holiness. They focus on doctrine and neglect a life that reflects the image of Jesus. Another type avoids doctrine, focuses on their, their behavior, but doesn't want to get into doctrinal issues. And they say things like, well, we don't need doctrine, we just need to love Jesus. And that sounds great. But then we get to the question, well, which Jesus the Mormon Jesus, the Muslim Jesus, the Jehovah's Witness Jesus, because they're all different. Or the biblical Jesus. So we can't just say things like that and neglect doctrine and neglect teaching. The first group is puffed up with head knowledge but neglect holiness and the fruits of the Spirit. You wouldn't really want to hang out with that type of person. The second group seems nice and they outwardly are good people, but as Paul says, they're carried away by every wind and wave of doctrine. These are people that are not anchored in the truth. And so when any new teaching arises, they follow after it. They're carried away by every wind and wave of doctrine, every newfangled belief. Oh, that sounds really good. The early church found the middle ground, and so should we. They were committed to biblical teaching. There would certainly be doctrinal disputes and issues that would arise. In fact, in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council meets to settle one of these issues. And so we must be committed to biblical teaching or biblical doctrine. <clears throat> in a survey taken in 1991, thir 31 years ago, I would have been six, years, seven years old, interviewees were asked, do you agree strongly, agree somewhat, or disagree somewhat, or disagree strongly with the following statement? There is no such thing as absolute truth. Different people can define truth in conflicting ways and still be correct. This was 30 years ago. Only 28% of the respondents expressed strong belief in absolute truth. And more surprisingly, only 23% of born-again or evangelical Christians accepted the idea of absolute truth. If more than 75% of professed followers of Christ says that nothing can be known for certain, then how can we have any confidence in the gospel? If 23% of self-professed born-again Christians are not certain that the Bible is true, that Jesus is God, that he was born of a virgin, that he died and rose again, then what are we doing? And brothers and sisters, the church in America was in sad shape in 1991, and I don't think it's gotten any better. If we're going to be a healthy church, the first mark is that we must be committed to biblical doctrine, or maybe a better way to put it is to be, to be anchored in the truth of God's Word. As a ship sets its anchor in the ocean, it's going to stay put, it's going to be steadfast. It's not going to be tossed. We must be anchored in the truth of God's Word. A healthy church most definitely will have theological disagreements from time to time. 
especially in a culture that's drifting far and far away from the Bible. And we see churches that are compromising their beliefs to accommodate a godless culture. We constantly have to evaluate what we believe and remain anchored and committed to biblical truth. We can't avoid doctrine. We must be committed to biblical doctrine. And biblical teaching is essentially our nourishment. And if we aren't committed to it, then we will quickly abandon it for teachings that are opposed to Scripture. And we see churches doing this right now and compromising and changing their stances on homosexuality and things like that. And we must remain committed to what the Bible says. What does the Bible say? What does God's Word tell us? We must be anchored in it. The early church was, and that must be a mark that characterizes us as well. Number two, a healthy church is committed to biblical fellowship. The second thing we see here is they were continually devoting themselves to not only the apostles' teaching, we see into fellowship. Now this fellowship is a, is a Greek word, Quanania that means to have all things in common, to, to, have, to be in common. And when we think of fellowship as a church, what simply comes to our mind? Oh, we're Baptists, come on, don't be afraid. A meal. The fellowship meal. And there is nothing wrong with that. We see that actually in Scripture right here as they, as they share meals together. So that is certainly a part of fellowship. I am pro-fellowship meal. I like to eat. But fellowship is much more than meeting for a meal. And we're, it means that they were had all things in common. We look in the text here a little bit further down. Verse 44, 44. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. Now... Let's be realistic. They, they probably didn't have every single thing in common. They probably had different favorite colors. They probably liked different types of music. They probably had different family traditions. They probably weren't exactly alike. And we know they weren't. You can see that in the rest of the scriptures. But what it means is when it came to those things that mattered, those things that were essential to the Christian faith, the gospel truths, they were united. When we look in Ephesians, I didn't plan to go here, but I will. Give me one second here. In the book of Ephesians. Come on, we'll get there eventually. Ephesians chapter 4. It says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Sometimes being united just means tolerating one another from time to time. But being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And then it continues, it says, even though there is one God, we all have different gifts, but it says here to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. It talks about all the things that we have in common. One God, one Father, one Spirit, one faith, one baptism, all those things. There's so many things that could divide us. And I'm sure if we were to have discussions on more theological minor issues, we'd have some disagreements and some squabbles. But when it comes to the things that matter, when it comes to what is central to the Christian faith and central to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the early church were united and they had fellowship. And they were of one mind and they were, had all things in common. And this was important. This mark of fellowship was important as they continued in the Christian life.
In the fall one year, a lady named Linda, a young woman, <coughs> was traveling alone up the rutted and rugged highway from Alberta to the Yukon. Linda didn't know that you don't travel to Whitehorse alone in a rundown Honda Civic. So she set off with only four wheel she set off where only four wheel drives normally venture. The first evening she found a room in the mountains near Summit and asked for a 5 a.m. wake up call so she could get an early start. <clears throat> she couldn't understand why the clerk looked surprised at the request. But as she awoke too early, morning fog surrounded the mountaintops and she understood. Not wanting to look foolish, she got up and went to breakfast. Two truckers invited Linda to join them, and since the place was so small, she felt obliged. Where are you headed, one of the truckers asked. Whitehorse. In that little Honda Civic? No way. This pass is dangerous in weather like this. Well, I'm determined to try, was Linda's gutsy, if not informed, response. Then I guess we're just going to have to hug you, the trucker suggested. Linda drew back and said, there's no way I'm going to let you touch me. Not like that, the trucker chuckled. We'll put one truck in front of you and another one in the rear, and that way we'll get you through the mountains. All that foggy morning, Linda followed the two red dots in front of her and had the reassurance of a big escort behind as they made their way safely through the mountains. Caught in the fog, in our dangerous passage through life, we need to be hugged. With fellow Christians who know the way and can lead safely ahead of us, and with others behind, gently encouraging us along, we too can pass safely through this Christian life. Why is fellowship important? We need one another as we seek to walk in the light in this dark and dying world. If all we were committed to was the Sunday worship gathering, then we would never move beyond surface level relationships. There isn't really opportunities during the Sunday morning worship hour for deep conversations. This is why the early church didn't just meet in the temple for formal gatherings, but daily from house to house. When they were in each other's homes, they could get deeper. And we need those deeper relationships and conversations where people can speak truth into our lives. A healthy church moves beyond the, hey, how are you? I'm fine. Just sitting down over a meal or coffee and really ask, no, really, how are you doing in your walk with the Lord? How can I pray for you? We need to have such a unity in the things of eternal significance that our fellowship in Christ can overcome those differences and challenges that could drive us apart. The third thing I want us to see is that the healthy church is committed to biblical worship. Still here in uh, verse 42, it says they were committed to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. It literally means into the prayers. And some of your Bibles may, may say it that way. These were more formal liturgical prayers that they would commit themselves to. And the breaking of the bread here is, is communion. And so they were committed to these formal worship gatherings. And this certainly is at more formal time, and we're going to see they also had more informal times of worship in one another's homes. <clears throat> they attended the temple together, and they received their food together and praised God in one another's houses. When we typically think of worship, what do we typically associate it with? Anybody? Church service, singing, and certainly it includes that. But worship is much more than singing, but it is not less. Romans 12.1 tells us, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And we, I'm sure you're familiar with this verse. Holy and acceptable to God, this is your spiritual act of... Anybody know? Spiritual act of worship. It is an act of worship as we live our lives as living sacrifices unto God. So we've got to ask, what are you living for? Whatever it is that you devote your life to, that is what you worship. 
Some people devote their lives to accumulating stuff. They got to have the next newest thing. Well, that's what they worship. Some people devote their lives to making more money and, and to be wealthy. That's what they worship. But what are we devoted to? Are we devoted to living our lives sacrificially for the glory of God? Are we living in a, a way that is pleasing to our Father as worship? The worship is more than singing, but it is not less. The Bible tells us in Colossians, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom and teaching, admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So singing is biblical. We are commanded to sing. It says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. How does, how does that happen? Now, certainly this happens through preaching, but I'm going to be honest. I've heard a lot of sermons in my life. I grew up in church. I can barely remember a single one of them. Well, you, but why are you a preacher then? <laughs> well, I don't remember any one particular sermon. I've been guided by those sermons and the Word of God throughout my life to bring me to where I am. But I can't recall, if you ask me, hey, what did, what did your pastor preach on in June of 1998? I don't know. And you don't either. But we do remember song lyrics. We do remember music. I have four children. I get the craziest song stuck in my head. I can sing Paw Patrol by memory. I'm not going to do that here. You'll have to pay extra for that. But songs speak to us. And we remember songs. We can sing so many of the hymns by heart. And it's important that those songs be anchored in the gospel because then the word of Christ dwells within us when we recall those songs to mind. When we sing those songs to one another. <clears throat> Notice that through singing, we teach and admonish one another. When we come to sing during corporate worship, I've, I've often heard people say, well, you know, you just need to get alone with God during the service. I would argue that the opposite needs to happen. There are times to get alone with God, but not on Sunday morning. When we sing, it is not a time to tune one another out as we sing, but to pay attention to one another because we are admonishing one another through song. Imagine this, that you're having a rough day. You're maybe having a, a rough season of life and you come to church and you're sitting there. Maybe you don't even really feel like singing. Then you hear the congregation start to sing. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way. Man, wouldn't life be great if that's what life was like? If, if we had peace, just like a nice little stream flowing. that You could go wade your feet in and sit in nice calm water. You hear this song, when peace like a river attendeth my way. Or when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And maybe during that rough moment, you're sitting there and you're, you're, you're hearing the congregation sing that song. Like, you know what? It's going to be okay. It's going to be well with my soul. And as you continue to sing that song, you are thrown upon the rock of the gospel as the lyrics continue. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. Is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. And you hear the gospel. And you realize that 
Christ has redeemed you. Your sins have been nailed to the cross. You've been forgiven. And no matter what comes your way, it's going to be well with your soul. You're ministered to by the singing that happens in church. I remember the lyrics to this song more than any sermon I've heard in my entire life. We admonish one another and encourage one another as we sing. Another important passage on worship is when Jesus is with the woman at the well and he confronts her sin that she's had five husbands. She has another one who she's not married to and she's exposed. And so she changes the subject and tries to enter a debate on where you're supposed to worship at, the location of worship. Some say you're supposed to worship on this mountain. Some say here. Okay, Jesus, what do you say? You're, you're obviously a prophet. And Jesus' says, location isn't important. He says, the Father seeks worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth. And I think this is helpful to avoid two pitfalls. First is spiritless worship. The content might be solid, but it's devoid of the Spirit's work. It's essentially when we come to church, we just go through the motions. We sing the songs, we hear the message, we close the prayer, we're done. We go through the motions. Where's the Spirit? Has the Spirit moved? Are we paying attention to the Spirit? Are we, are we, are we in tune to the Spirit of God as we worship? If we're just going through the motions, then it's just cold, dead religious activity. We need a moving of the Spirit to stir our hearts with affection for Christ. The other extreme is emotionalism that can be mistaken for the Spirit. People's emotions are stirred and you may see either people crying or dancing, but there's no biblical content. And I'm sure you've heard musicians and singers that, man, they sing so well that they could sing the phone book and make you cry. Well, that's not obviously the work of the Spirit. That's just stirring your emotions with the beauty of music. There may, there may be no truth to the songs being sung. It may be very shallow, devoid of the gospel. And in this case, it's not the truth of the gospel that's moving us, but manipulative emotionalism. This can happen in, in preaching too. I, I was a camp counselor my senior year of high school. I was a camp counselor for a middle school camp in our, in our youth group. I was leading a, a Bible study group uh, with, with our middle school students. And we had had this preacher from the outside come in and he's preaching, he's preaching, and then you know, it comes to the time at the end of the service. He tells everybody to close their eyes, bow their heads. And he says, is anybody in here struggling with sin? Well, I mean... Yeah, I am. I, I mean, who, who is it? How, how many of you wants to get rid of that sin? Well, you bet I do. Who doesn't? Uh, keep in mind, I'm a Christian. I'm leading a Bible study. And this is all right. With every head bowed and eyes closed, I want you to repeat after me. He starts leading in the sinner's prayer. Like, wait a minute, I'm already a Christian. You're tricking me into saying the sinner's prayer again. And, and, and I feel like even in preaching, we can manipulate. And, 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 and so, no, no doubt, as that preacher saw all those hands raised, they were more like me that did. Because we talked about it afterwards. He went and had a conversation with him. Man, we had so many, this many number of souls saved. No, you didn't. I was already a believer. As well as many of my other friends. We don't want to manipulate people into thinking they've been worshiping the Lord or manipulate people and thinking they've made a decision when the Spirit of God hasn't been at work in their hearts. Music does stir our emotions, but in the church, music must be rich with biblical truth and gospel content. And the early church was committed to worshiping together, both corporately in the temple and informally in their homes. It says here, they were continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Even the act of eating was an act of worship. So 
let me ask you this. Where do you fall on the spectrum? Are you worshiping in spirit and in truth? Are you living your life as an act of worship to God? As a living sacrifice? Well, my two-year-old is, praise the Lord. Apparently. I would argue against that probably in a lot of ways. <laughs> Number four, a healthy church is committed to biblical generosity. As they had all things in common, as you look here in verse 45, they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as if anyone might had need. Now, I'm not going to try to get political here, but many will charge the early church here with some form of socialism or communism. And that's the furthest thing from the truth. In those two philosophies, essentially the government is taking from you and distributing to all equally. That is not what's happening here. Notice in the text, this is not forced. They began selling their property and possessions. This was something that they did voluntarily because of what God had done in their hearts. They had been given so much grace in Christ. This was a natural response to them being redeemed by the gospel. They, they, they began selling their stuff and they shared with them all, but as anyone had need. This was not some thing for equality everybody's got to have the equal amount or distribute equally this was we're doing this and we're giving the proceeds to people that need it we're ministering to needs this was generosity this is a group of people who have been changed by the gospel and willing to sell their stuff to meet to give money to people as it's needed. Now some may have more possessions that they sell, and some members may have less, but all are generous. Not everyone has the same amount of wealth or the same ability to give the same amount, but everybody here was generous. And the church gave to anyone as was needed. Some had bigger bank accounts than others, some gave more generously than others, but all were generous. And all ministered to those in need. There's a story that is told one day about a beggar by the roadside who asked for alms from Alexander the Great as he passed by. The man was poor and wretched and had no claim upon the ruler, no right to even a solicitous hand. Yet the emperor threw him several gold coins. One of the courtiers was astonished at the generosity and commented, Sir, Copper coins would adequately meet the beggar's need. Why give him gold? Alexander responded. He said, copper coins would suit the beggar's need, but gold coins suit Alexander's giving. He gave more than was needed because of his generosity. When we talk about generosity, it's none of our business to know how much you give, what percentage you give, but the issue is your heart. Are you giving with glad and generous hearts? Notice what Paul says in Ephesians 4.28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor and doing honest work with his own hands. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Paul here is saying that the purpose of working is not so we can have a bigger house and nicer stuff or a boat or a fancy car that you've always wanted, but to have resources to be generous. And Paul <clears throat> admonishes the rich in the present age to not put their uncertainty, to put their hope in the uncertainty of wealth, but in God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Enjoying things is not a sin, but... He tells the rich, let them do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Listen to what Paul says to the Corinthian church. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. <clears throat> Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, 
not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. When we talk about biblical generosity, the point is not what dollar amount or what percent you give, but are you giving cheerfully and generously to anyone as needed? Ultimately, the church is not a welfare program. We don't exist just to give money away. We want to be good stewards and use our resources well. So we meet needs and we give, but that's not the end-all, be-all, which leads us to our next point. Number five, a healthy church is committed to biblical evangelism. There's... A passage in the next chapter, in Acts chapter 3, where there's a beggar uh, at the temple. And Peter and John were going up to the temple. <clears throat> and it says, a man had been lame from his mother's womb. And this man is there to beg for alms as those were entering the temple. He's, he's essentially almost like a panhandler. You go up to Louisville, you see people just out with signs begging for money. I see it on almost every street corner. This is essentially what this guy's doing. He's begging for alms as those people were entering. When he sees Peter and John about to go in the temple, he began to ask. Peter, along with John, he fixed his gaze. And then Peter says, I don't possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Now the point here is not the healing. The point is, is what he did after the healing. He went to the temple and he worshipped. He had been changed. Not just changed physically, but he had been changed spiritually. They didn't give him a dime. But they gave him salvation. So yes, we need to be a biblically generous church. We need to be meeting needs as we can. But that's not the end-all, be-all. We must be committed to biblical evangelism. Notice what it says here in the last verse. It says, They were praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And we see here first, it's the Lord who saves. There's one passage, I believe it's in Corinthians, where it says Paul waters, Apollos, or Paul plants, Apollos waters, but it's God who gives the increase. As we preach the gospel, we share the gospel with people, it's ultimately the Lord who saves, and that ought to take some pressure off of us. I, I'm not, I don't save anybody. I preach the gospel. I tell people about Jesus, and it's God who saves by His Spirit. That takes the pressure off a little. I need to be obedient. But it's God who saves. The Lord is the one adding to their number those who are being saved. God is the one saving. The Lord does this work, but what leads to their getting saved? How is this explosive daily growth happening? Well, just go back one chapter. Acts chapter 1-8 says you will receive power when the spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we see the, 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 the reason the Lord is adding to their number day by day, those who are being saved, is because they are being God's witnesses. They're sharing the gospel. The healthy church is marked by biblical evangelism. As these early disciples were empowered and indwelt by the Spirit, they were committed to sharing the gospel, and God increased their number daily. If we aren't telling people about Jesus, what are we doing? If we have been saved by His grace, and we know that we have what it takes to escape hell and go to heaven for eternity, why don't we share that? When we share the gospel, what must we share? The, the gospel, the good news has particular content. And I'm going to give you four things to help you share the gospel. 
Four words. God, man, Christ, and response. You can write those down if you want to. God, He's the sovereign creator and created us to worship and fellowship with Him. But then man, Adam, Adam and Eve disobeyed God by eating the forbidden fruit. They fell into sin and plunged the entire human race into a sinful nature. And since then, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And because of our sin nature, we are separated from God and deserve eternal separation from Him. But God had planned before the creation of the world to exalt Jesus as the name above all names. And He sent Christ to redeem fallen humanity. He took on flesh as a baby and He grew to be a sinless sacrifice. He died in our place on the cross, paying the ultimate penalty for sin, and rose again, defeating death to guarantee that we could have eternal life. But we must call people to respond. And our response to Christ's sacrifice is to repent of sin, to turn from it, and to place our faith, trust, and confident hope in what Jesus did for us on the cross. We then live our lives for His glory out of a heart of gratitude for His grace in saving us. In biblical evangelism, we must share the content of the gospel and call for a response. We don't, we don't want to manipulate people like that preacher did when I was in high school so we can pad the numbers and say, look how many people are being saved. We want to see genuine conversion, not fake numbers to report to some denominational entity. We want to see genuine life change. We want to see the Lord adding to the number of the redeemed and not men adding numbers to a stat sheet to make themselves look good. The reason the Lord was adding to their number is they were being faithful witnesses for Jesus Christ. A famous preacher, D.L. Moody, made a covenant with God that he would witness for Christ to at least one person each day. That's pretty bold. One night, about 10 o'clock, he realized that he had not yet witnessed. So he went out in the street and spoke to a man standing by a lamppost, asking him, Are you a Christian? The man flew into a violent rage and threatened to knock Moody into the gutter. Later, that same man went to an elder in the church and complained that Moody was doing more harm in Chicago than ten men were doing good. <clears throat> the elder begged Moody to temper his zeal with knowledge. Three months later, Moody was awakened at the YMCA by a man knocking at the door. It was the man he had witnessed to. Three months later, he apologized for the way he treated Moody and said he had no peace ever since that night on Lake Street when Moody witnessed to him. Moody led the man to Christ and he became a zealous worker in the Sunday school program. Are you sharing the gospel with unbelievers? As we share, we very well may have an encounter like D.L. Moody met with rejection, met with hostility. But we never know what is God going to do in that person's heart. Three months later, that man came to Christ. Are you sharing the gospel? If there is a mark where Christians in the church are losing ground, I believe it's this one. But a healthy church is marked by a commitment to biblical evangelism to share the gospel. So I'm going to ask you to do something bold this year. I'm not going to ask you to do what D.L. Moody did to share the gospel with one person every day. I probably can't do that. But will you commit to sharing the gospel with one person this year? Commit to sharing the gospel with one person over 360, what, four days now. We've, we've already lost one yesterday. So, 364 days. As you do that, You've got all year. Invite them in your home. Take them out for dinner. Take them out for coffee. Build a relationship with them. And before the end of the year, you don't have to wait till then, and probably best not to, but share the gospel with them. Pray for them. Invite them to church. And if they respond in repentance and faith, then commit to discipling them and helping them grow. Will you do that? One person, one year. Five marks of a healthy church. 
committed to biblical doctrine, to biblical fellowship, to biblical worship, biblical generosity, and biblical evangelism. I pray that these five things would mark us as a church here at Deep Creek Baptist Church. And as we conclude, as we have the time of response, I want you to think about that one person. I want you to recall in your mind one person who you might know is an unbeliever. Could be a family member, could be a neighbor, could be a coworker, could be someone you really don't have much of a relationship with, but they're on your heart. And then write their name down and put it in your Bible. And as you have quiet times, as you have times, pray for them. But don't just pray for them. You don't stop there. You need to share with them. So think about ways you can reach out to them and invite them into your home, have dinner with your family. Invite them to church. Invite them to coffee. But move beyond the superficial conversation. Hey, how about the, how about the game last night? And get to the point of saying, hey, do you know Jesus? Are you following Christ? If you die, where are you going to spend eternity? And share the gospel. They might not respond immediately and they might not get saved this year. But they might come to you six months from then and say, man, I need to talk to you. You you kind of made me mad that one night when you told me I needed to repent and believe the gospel, but I've been thinking about that ever since and you're right. And I'd like to do that. Can you tell me how to be a Christian? Write their name down. Put it in your Bible. Will you commit to that? And you know what? I'd even like to know their name. I don't even need to know who they are. Give me a first name so I can be praying for them. So I can be praying for you. As we have the time of response, pray for that person and think about ways that you may be able to reach them. Let's pray.